We have been in our new series, What is the Church? And so for the last few weeks, um, the last three weeks, what we've been doing is we have been um, going through our introduction uh, to this series. And so what we started with when we first started our series, uh, we started in Ephesians chapter 1, and we were looking at uh, Paul's message of hope. Paul brings up this message of hope in the scriptures that we were reading, uh, and we were looking at the hope of our inheritance, and then we were also looking at uh, this hope that we have in God's inheritance. And so one of the things that we asked in our first study was, okay, what is it that God stands to inherit? I mean, if he's God, if he's the King of Kings, if he's the Lord of Lords, what is it that he could possibly stand to inherit? And it's Ephesians chapter 1, if I remember, I believe it's verse 18, uh, excuse me if I'm wrong, uh, but it says that the glorious riches, or the riches of his glorious inheritance, is us. That the riches of God's glorious inheritance is found in us, it's found in the church, it's found in you, it's found in me, it's, it's found in God's people. And so when we begin to see how God views the church, that should have a profound effect on how we live now. When we know that God is going to get his inheritance, God will get his inheritance. That is a guarantee that's going to happen. And when we know what that inheritance is, us, that should have a profound effect on how we live here and now. Right? So we want our view of the church to begin to be shaped by how God views, how God views the church. And so that's how we started off uh, the series. Uh, in, the second week we, in the second week, we looked at Christ, the builder of the church. So we were looking at Matthew chapter 16 in this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Uh, there was a lot of confusion about who Jesus was. And so Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? You know, what's the, what's the news that's out there? What do the people think or who do the people think that I am? And they said that, oh, you know, some think you're Elijah. Some think you're uh, John the Baptist. Others say Jeremiah. Others say another prophet. You know, there, again, there was all this confusion about who Jesus, who Jesus was. And Jesus says, okay, well, what about you guys? Who, who do you say that I am? You know, you guys are my disciples. You've been walking with me. Who do you say that I am? Uh, and Jesus, or excuse me, the disciples, even though that they've been walking with Jesus, they also were at many times confused about who Jesus was. You know, why does Jesus talk about he has to die? What is this, you know, you know there was confusion even amongst them. But in a moment of, of clarity and, and divine revelation, Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Uh, and so it's like Peter, Peter sees Jesus for who he really is. He says, you're the Christ. You're the one, you're the one that the, the Old Testament was talking about. You're the Messiah. You are the son of God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, uh, but by my Father in heaven. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And the point was, we want to see Jesus again rightly. Right? We, want to, we want to know Jesus as the Messiah. We want to know Jesus as the Son of God, as God in the flesh. And when we see him as that, when we know that this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has come down on earth, he himself says, he says of himself, I am the builder of the church. When we begin to see the builder of the church rightly, the more, you know, and when we have this awe and this reverence and this love for the builder, the more we're going to have an awe and love and reverence for what it is that he's building, the church. So we want to see Jesus rightly for who he is, as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the builder, because the more we see him for who he is, the more we're going to care about what he's, what he's building. And then uh, last week, what we were looking at was uh, the kind of the quote-unquote, the path leading up to uh, the church. We read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, uh, that says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. And so what we said last week was, 
the, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is uh, written from the perspective of this person named the teacher. Uh, and the teacher is offering all these words of wisdom uh, that are, to be honest, very blunt, uh, at sometimes very depressing, but very honest words of wisdom about just how, you know, the, like what the nature of life is really like. And what we are pulling away, you know, when we're thinking of, okay, building the church and what is it that, you know, what is the church? From that verse, we took three things away uh, that we can kind of learn. The first thing that the teacher says is, one, guard your steps. And so if you can kind of think of like a, an example of, um, what was the example? The example that we gave was like, if you go hiking, right? if you go hiking and you see a, a, a patch of ground that's really, really wet, or, uh, you know, maybe the, uh, the, the path kind of takes a steep dive for a moment, uh, right? Or if it's like really muddy or it's really dark or, you know, something along those lines, you're not going to just go blindly running, you know, into that, into that path. Right? No. What are you going to do? You're going to maybe look for a different route. You know, maybe you're going to you know, look for things that you can hold on to so you can you know, safely get down. You're going to kind of brace yourself as you move down that steep hill, you know, whatever it might be. What you're doing is you're guarding your steps. Right? You're mindful of your environment. Right? You're, you're, you're careful of where you're stepping right? because you know, if you just kind of step flippantly, if you just you know, kind of blindly go in carelessly, that can cause you harm. Right? And so the, the teacher is telling you know, the Old Testament Jews, hey, when you're coming into the house of God, guard your steps. Be mindful of the surrounding that you're in. Right? Be mindful of whose presence that you're in. What he's really saying is acknowledge the presence of the Lord. That when you come into the house of God, that hey, this is where the presence of God dwells. And now on this side of the cross, we know that the presence of God isn't you know, uh, just represented by four walls of a building. That God has chosen to place his spirit within us that we are now the temple. So whether we are coming into the, to the physical house of God, into, into the building house of God, or we are, you know, whether we're at work or we're at school or we're at home or whatever, be mindful of whose presence that you're in. That there's never a moment that you are not in God's presence. Right? So just as the, the teacher was telling the, the Old Testament, hey, guard your steps. Just be mindful. Acknowledge the presence of the Lord when you come into the house of God. The same thing here. That we are mindful of whose presence that we're in. That when we, you know, uh, if we're talking about church as in the, this building church, when we come in that, hey, I'm coming in mindful of his presence. I'm coming in mindful of his word. I'm coming in with a heart posture that says, Lord, I want to hear from you. I want to receive from you. That I'm not coming in with any other motives or, you know, the stresses of the day or this kind of thing. That like, not to say that like you have to like leave all those things outside and you, can, you have to come in perfect or something. No, 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 we're not saying that. But we're coming in saying, Lord, I'm going to shift my attention. I'm going to shift my focus onto you. That the reason that I come here is because of you. The reason why we even have a place to gather is because of you, right? He becomes the sole focus, nothing and no one else. Right? So the teacher says, guard your steps. Uh, the second thing that we saw in that verse was the teacher says, go near. Go near. The same God who is holy, the same God who is completely, you know, who, who deserves our reverence, who deserves our respect, who deserves our complete attention. The same God who deserves our complete acknowledgement is the same God who has, who has invited us to draw near. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God is, is, is perfect in all of his ways. And it's the same God who is loving enough to draw us near. We have no business being near God. We have no business. And yet it's God who has drawn us near. So our reverence of him, our acknowledgement of him that, yes, this is a big God and a holy God, is not to keep us away from him. 
Right. Our reverence of him isn't to, to say, okay, God, I can never come near you and I can never speak to you and I'm never supposed to be around you. And, and I, you know, like that's not, that's not the point. That when God is, is uh, when we acknowledge God, we acknowledge the whole God. Yes, he is holy and yes, he is drawing. He has drawn us near. It's God who told the Old Testament Jews to, uh, who, who picked the Jews and said, I will choose you out of all my people to be a, a holy nation and a, and a, a uh, kingdom of priests. I chose you to do that. I will dwell among you. I will tell you how to build the temple so that my presence will be among you. I will be the one to guide you in the church. I will place my spirit in the church. I will place my spirit within you. I will send my son to die for you so that your sins would be paid for. It's God who has been constantly, Old Testament, New Testament, drawing us near to him. So again, our reverence of him isn't supposed to keep us away from him. So we draw near or we go near. Uh, And then lastly, uh, the last thing that we said that the teacher was saying from that verse in Ecclesiastes 5.1, uh, he says, listen. He says, go near to listen. And what we find throughout the Bible is that to really listen to God, when God says listen, uh, it really means to obey. That you can't really listen to God without obeying God. That the two are tied, the two are tied together. And so what the, what the teacher was saying was, hey, draw near to listen so that you may actually like, take to heart what it is that he's actually saying. That when you begin to see God for who he really is, when you begin to acknowledge him as holy, when you begin to acknowledge him as loving, when you begin to acknowledge what it is that he's actually saying, that's supposed to have a profound impact on what you do, on how you live. So he says, draw near to listen, to really take in what it is that that God is saying and be transformed by what it is that he's saying. Like allow that to affect your daily life. He says, don't draw near to to offer the sacrifice of fools. What's the, the, the sacrifice of fools? Well, the Old Testament Jews, you know, sometimes, you know, people might come in on the Sabbath, you bring your animal, you sacrifice whatever you need to sacrifice, you might bring an offering, uh, you know, some money to give to the temple, you know, you, you celebrate whatever festivals you need to celebrate, you blow the trumpet, you sing your songs, and then the rest of the week, you don't acknowledge God. The rest of the week, your heart is far from God. The rest of the week, right, you know, uh, you, you worship other gods and you, you sin against your neighbor and this, that, and the other, right? That's the sacrifice of fools. To come in thinking that, okay, God, as long as I just sacrifice this animal, and as long as I just give a little bit of money, and as long as I, you know, celebrate the festival, that you and I are good. The rest of the week, I'm going to do me. It says, your, your sacrifice is useless. That's a sacrifice of fools. And, and it's, that's not too different from us now. Obviously, we're not, you know, cutting up animals anymore. But the, the same principle applies, that we don't just come in to offer the sacrifice of fools. We don't come and gather, you know, on Sundays and, and we sing our songs and we give a tithe. Maybe we even give, you know, more than 10% and, you know, and, and we, we do all the, the religious activity just for the sake of doing it. But then the rest of our life doesn't reflect any relationship with him at all. We don't do the religious activity just for the sake of doing it. No. He says, draw near to listen, to really take into what it is that I have to say and then begin to obey. Right? That the rest of your life begins to reflect the relationship that we have. This uh, obedience to God is never to earn salvation. Right? It's never to earn our way into his presence. It's never to earn our way you know, and to say, okay, now God, can I come near? No, God has already drawn us near. Right? His presence here now is already within us. So the obedience to God is not, again, this way to say, okay, now God, you and I are on good terms. Now God, you know what I'm saying? Like, no. That's not the point. But at the same time, God is, you know, so uh, let me back up. So this is not to say, like, do the stuff to be on good terms with God. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we don't do what it is that God is calling us to do. We didn't necessarily talk about this last week, but I want to bring it up now. Um, God is not opposed to your effort. 
God is not opposed to effort. Sometimes we, we, we hear these things that like, there's no, there's no effort, you know, there's no trying, there's no striving, there, there, there's no working, there's no, that's nonsense, to be honest. God is not opposed to your effort, as long as your effort doesn't mean earning salvation. In that case, then yeah, your effort is, is useless. But God is not opposed to your effort in the sense of like, God, I want to obey you. There is work involved in your relationship with the Lord. Right? It takes time to pray. It takes time to read. It takes time, you know, like, and, and sacrifice to say, you know what, like, I know that the flesh wants to do this, but Lord, I know you say something else. So there is effort involved. And so let's not, you know, confuse the two and think that like, oh, if it, if it requires any kind of work, that's not something that God wants me to do. That's false. So your effort and your obedience to God doesn't mean earning from him. That's not why we do it. No, we do it because when you see him for who he is, again, as the builder of the church, as holy, as reverent, as, as you know, the one who is drawing us near, all of those things, again, it begins to transform how we live. So that was last week. And that was kind of, that wraps up kind of like our introduction to this whole series, What is the Church? And so uh, today... Um, what I want everyone to kind of do is to think of like, to think of a building. We're going to use a building as a metaphor, right? Uh, and we're going to use this metaphor, you know, this building of the church as a metaphor. And um, we're going to look at, today, we're going to look at the building's foundation, right? So we're all going to pretend we're like we're architects and we're civil engineers and, you know, whatever. And so we're going to be building this building or looking at this building, you know, like from the ground up. And so today we're going to look at the building's foundation, um, over our series, we're going to look at pillars that are going to go on top of the foundation. Uh, these pillars, uh, seven to be, uh, to be exact, and these pillars that would absolutely crumble without the right foundation. Um, we're going to look at the one who lives inside this building, the spirit. Uh, and then we're going to look at the, the quote-unquote, the roof of this building, like what everything is pointing, what everything is pointing to. Right? Uh, and so today... Again, we're going to look at the foundation. And again, all of this, to, to kind of summarize why we're even doing this, right? All of this is in hopes that we get that clearer view. Right? We really want to see God for who he is. We want to see Christ for who he really is. And we want to see, we want to see the church for what the church really is. Right? We want that right view of the church because the church, it's us. So we get the right view of God we get the right view of the church, right? If we have a holy view of God, we'll have a holy view of the church. If we have a reverent view of God, we should have a reverent view of the church, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's what we're hoping, hoping to do. Um, you know, what is it that God is building? Why is he building the church? What is the purpose of the church? What is your purpose? What is my purpose? What is our purpose collectively together? So uh, for today, uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. And it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation on the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Read that one more time. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, 
the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So three things we're going to look at today. Um, One, what is a foundation? Two, what is our foundation? Christ, namely. And three, what does that mean? Like, what are the implications of having Jesus as our foundation? So one, what is a foundation? Two, what is our foundation? Three, what does it mean to have Jesus as our foundation? What are the practical implications, or at least some of them, um, of having Jesus as our foundation? So, uh, number one, what is a foundation? All right, so again, if we've got our, we're architects, we're civil engineers, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, we're using a uh, building as a metaphor for the, for the church. So what is a foundation? A foundation is more than just the bottom part of the building, right? Uh, that a foundation is what supports and anchors the entire building. Uh, that a good one, depending, a good foundation, depending on, you know, the size of the building, how, how much it's going to weigh, those kinds of things, a good one is going to be deep and it's going to be wide that it needs to be able to handle all the weight of the building right, and everything that's going to go inside of it. Uh, it needs to be able to account for the elements, the hot and cold air causing you know, shrinking and swelling, the shifting soils, all these things. It needs to be able to account for, for those things uh, and still be able to keep the building firm. It has to be able to take all these things in and, still, and, and not be easily, easily moved. Right, that, the, that a foundation is this. The foundation is the main reason behind the stability of any structure. You've got a good foundation, you've got a good building. You've got a good foundation, you've got a good chance that the, that the building is going to stand. You can have the best materials in the world to build the, you know, the, everything that's above ground. You can have the best steel, you can have the best types of wood, you can have the best materials in the world. But if your foundation is garbage, that building will not stand. When you think of a foundation being able to hold something up, Right. Is, or let's, let's think, think of it this way. What, which person would be easier to knock over? Would this person, standing on one leg, be easier to knock over, or would this person be easier to knock over? The first person. Right? The person who's standing on one leg is going to be way easier to knock over than the person who's standing like this, right? Foundation. That's a foundation. So in the same, in the same way, you know, when you're thinking of, of a building, right, the foundation needs to be firm, needs to be solid. That's what keeps the rest of the building, keeps the rest of the building up. Now, this passage that we read also talks about a cornerstone, right, also known as a principal stone. Right, and in ancient, ancient architecture, uh, the cornerstone is the stone that was laid first. So when you dig up the ground and you're about to lay your foundation, the cornerstone was the stone that was laid first, and it was also going to be your largest stone. Uh, it is the stone that kind of guides the rest of the project. It is the stone that begins to orient the, the, the building in a specific direction. So if you lay your cornerstone here, for example, then the front of your building is going to be here. If you lay your cornerstone here, then the front of your building is going to be here. And again, everything else is based off of that cornerstone. So that's how they used, that's what, foundation, cornerstone. Okay. So then what is our foundation? Number one, what is the foundation? Number two, what is our foundation? What is it that supports and anchors the church? What is it that is able to handle the weight of the church? What is, you know, able to withstand all of the elements and the seasons and the passing time and and so on and so forth and, and still remain unwavering and still remain unshifting and still remain firm? What is, or or better question, who is our foundation? Christ. It is Christ. 
Here Paul writes, you know, that, that uh, part of the foundation is the apostles and the prophets, and we don't want to minimize, never want to minimize, the work that God did through them uh, to, to, to set this foundation. But when you think about it, and they would tell you the same thing, their messages all tell you the same thing, who are the Old Testament prophets pointing to? The Messiah, Christ. Who are the New Testament apostles always referring back to? Christ. Who are both Old Testament and New Testament talking about this, this other coming, this, this, you know, this king is going to return and go? Christ. So without Christ, there is no work for the prophets. There is no work for the apostles. There's nothing. There's nothing for them to point to. So the, 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 the ultimate foundation of the church, the chief cornerstone of the church is Christ. We stand on Christ. He is the stone that guides the rest of the project. He is the stone that orients the building in a specific direction. He is the reason that the church will stand firm for all time. Christ is our foundation. So if Christ is the foundation, then number three, what does it mean then? Like what are the practical implications then of uh, at least some of them of having Christ as our foundation? This is what we're going to spend the most of the time, most of the time in. What does it mean to have Christ as our foundation? Number one, it means that Christ is close. It means Christ is close. That he is not just the builder of the church, as we saw a few weeks ago, who's, you know, kind of, you know, uh, the builder of the church in the sense of like, okay, he's kind of standing, you know, standing afar from the project, you know, kind of directing the project from a distance or anything like that. He is not the, just the builder of the church with his hands on the church. He's not just that. The builder has actually inserted himself into the building. The builder has made himself the foundation of the church. The builder has made himself inseparable from the building. Like, what kind of building will stand without a foundation? It won't. There is no Christ. There, there is no church without Christ. If Christ is the foundation, that means they're, they're, you can't separate the two. Remove the foundation from a building, it's, that's impossible. You can't do that. So that means, that not, it doesn't just mean that God is close, that means God has made himself inseparable. Christ has made himself inseparable from the church. When Jesus in um, Acts chapter 9, I should say Saul, let me start with Saul. Uh, in Saul, with Saul in Acts chapter 9, uh, right, Saul has been persecuting the church. Saul has been arresting Christians. Saul has been, you know, he actually, in chapter 8, he just oversaw the murder, or chapter 7, I should say. He just saw, oversaw the murder of Stephen. Right? Um, no, that was chapter 8. Excuse me, that was chapter 8. Uh, he just oversaw the, the murder of Stephen, a Christian, right? Um, so this is what Paul has been doing. He has been arresting Christians. He has been persecuting them. He has, you know, having them killed. And he's on his way to another city to do the exact same thing in Acts chapter 9. And Jesus himself shows himself, reveals himself, Stops him in his tracks. And he says, Saul, Saul. What, what does he say? Does anybody know? Say it again. Why do you persecute me? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute Stephen? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute these people? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? No, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? But Jesus, aren't you a little confused? Right? I, I thought Saul was persecuting these people. I thought Saul was persecuting, you know, Stephen and, the, you know, all those other people. No, Jesus says, why do you persecute me? Because when you persecute the church, you persecute Christ. 
Christ was showing Saul and Christ is showing us all throughout the scriptures that he has made himself inseparable from the church. What you do to the church, you do to Christ. What you say to the church, you say to Christ. When you persecute the church, you persecute Christ. When you bless the church, you bless Christ. He has made himself inseparable from the church. The, the scriptures talk about, you know, that our, our earthly example of weddings and marriage points to the ultimate marriage between Christ, the groom, and his church, the bride. And in marriage, the two shall become one, inseparable. Scriptures, we find that Christ is the head and the church is his body. What good is a body without a head? Christ, again, example after example after example, that Christ has made himself inseparable from the church. So when, here's another one. When we see that Christ is the foundation of the church, that doesn't mean that God is, is just close. No, again, it points to the same thing, that God has made himself inseparable from the church. There is no church without Christ. So I know, like, when you are a believer, when you know Christ for who he is, when you have put your faith in him, you know something, that he has made himself inseparable from you. That's a big deal. So to have Christ as our foundation means, one, that Christ is close. Two, it means that no other foundation can do the job. No other foundation is fit to do the job. If we read, real quick, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, starting from verse 4. Peter writes, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, to reject Christ, to reject his love, his death, his resurrection, his salvation, to reject his work, to, to no longer accept him as your foundation, to, to put your hope and your trust in any other foundation, to think that you will be able to stand before God and say, okay, God, this is the foundation that I stand on. I stand not on the foundation of Christ, not on the salvation of Christ, not on the work of Christ, but I stand on any other foundation. My own wealth, my own education, uh, my own you know, uh, popularity, prestige, my own other gods, whatever it might be. That foundation will fall. There is no other foundation. There is no other work that you can stand on before God and say, now God, I'm good enough to be here. Now, God, I can stand here. Now, God, you can accept me because the foundation that I stand on, any other foundation apart from the one of Christ, will fail. Peter says, any other foundation 
or though, excuse me, uh, for, the, for this foundation, that those who believe in him, those will not be put to shame. But those who reject him will stumble over the same stone that, will save, that could have saved them. So there is no other suitable foundation for our lives. There is no other suitable foundation for our salvation. There is no other foundation that we ought to stand on. No other foundation will stand. Only the one of Christ will. And finally, what it means to have Christ as our foundation, a practical implication of having Christ as our foundation, it means that the church will stand. That the church will stand. Again, uh, a couple weeks ago when we were looking at Christ the builder, he says, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That was a testament to the builder. And now here, again, what we see is that the church will stand not only as a testament to the builder, that the builder is good, that the builder knows what he's doing, but because the foundation is good. Right? The builder is perfect. He knows what he's doing. The foundation is perfect. It will stand. So whatever is built on top of it, whatever the builder builds on top of this solid foundation, whatever the builder builds on top of this firm foundation, whatever this builder builds on top of this perfect foundation will stand. It will stand. It will not fail. Right? That the work of Christ is perfect. It is absolutely perfect. You can put your faith in this kind of foundation. You can put your faith in this kind of work. You can put your faith in Christ to say, God, there is absolutely nothing I can do to earn this from you. There is absolutely nothing that I can do that will, that, again, that will allow me to stand and say, now, God, you can accept me. Now, God, you can love me. No, the only reason why I can stand in front of you as righteous, the only reason why I can stand in front of you as saved, the only reason as I can stand in front of you as loved and accepted as a royal priesthood and as a holy nation is because of the foundation that I stand on. It's because of him. This foundation is so good that it's able to make people like us into a holy nation into a royal priesthood. There's nothing royal about us. There's nothing holy about us apart from God. Yes, we were made in His image, but sin has so tainted that image, sin has so marred that image, that there was nothing that we could do to restore it. And so this builder, who is perfect, has now set for us a perfect foundation that will be able to hold us up, that will be able to sustain us, that will be able to lift us up and say, these people will be holy. These people are my royal priesthood, my chosen. Having Christ as our foundation means that he's close, that he's more than close, that he's intertwined with the church. It means that no other foundation can do the job, and it does mean that the church will stand, that you will stand. If your belief is in him, your faith is in him, you will stand. So, Christ, our foundation. Before we close, I want to take a few minutes, you know, as we normally do, to, to just pray. And want to just thank him that he is our foundation, that he is the foundation of our lives, that, he is the founda- that, that, that his work is good enough, that we don't have to constantly, we, we do this a lot, we constantly try to replace that foundation with something else. You know, we, we, we do that intentionally, unintentionally, we do this all the time. I'm going to put my faith in this. I'm going to put my trust in this. And, and like something else is going to save me. Something else is going to bring me that joy. Something else. Right? We constantly keep looking to someone and something else. And yet the Bible continuously draws us back to, no, Christ. 
And so we want to take out just a few moments to just, to just thank him, that he is our foundation, that his work will stand. His work is perfect. It is good. But also, I want to invite everyone to take a moment to say, okay, Lord, what are some of those things that I have put my trust in, in apart from you? Right? You know, what, what's an area in my life that, you know what, Lord, you're God over here. You know, you're, you're, you're Christ you're the builder, you're my foundation, you're all these things over here, but in this area of my life, I've kind of held back from you. All right, I'm, I'm trying to go my own way in this area of my life. Whatever that may be, ask him. Really ask him. And Lord, like, highlight that. Not as a, as a means of condemnation. Right? Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But as a means of, Lord, I, I want you to, to, to really be the foundation of my whole life. Because I know that any foundation apart from you will not stand. It will fail. So, Lord, would you show me those areas where I haven't trusted you? Would you show me those areas where I haven't believed in you? Would you show me those areas where if, you know, like if I have held back any part of my life, or if, if I really haven't devoted my life to you, then let today be that day. Say, Lord, I repent. I turn to you and I ask you to be my foundation. My whole foundation. Right? God, God doesn't want to just be foundation over here and then, you know, we withhold the middle. The whole foundation. We'll take just a, a few minutes to, to pray and then we'll, then we'll close. Mm-hmm.